Good morning, and happy Father's Day to you. Uh, also, happy Father's Day to me. Um, you might have uh, noticed that we have a new guitar player up here today. And, uh, I don't think a guitar player has ever gotten applause like that before. <laughs> well, you guys know it's been, a, it's been a really long nine and a half months for us and for Angel, and uh, he got... Got, he came back with us on, uh, on Monday, and uh, we've just been thrilled getting to be able to spend some time with him again, and uh, I'm sure you're pretty thrilled yourself, aren't you? <laughs> and also, happy Father's Day to you. Um, okay, uh, I wonder, how many of you read the chapters or the, the scripture passage that you're supposed to read for today? Any of them? All right, that's good. That's, that's all right. That's a few of you. Okay, so what we have here in the bulletin is we have an insert that we'll probably put in another time or two. We just call it Hot Chapters of the Bible because what we're doing is we're walking through the whole of Scripture. We're going to give you what's called a, a biblical survey, and, and we're mostly looking at, we're just going to hit various bits and pieces that will give you the overarching theme, the overarching story of Scripture. And as we're doing that, we want you to be reading along as well. And, uh, and we believe, and, and actually, I, um, I emailed a, uh, a New Testament scholar because I, I saw him or heard him mention in a lecture that when he was teaching introduction to the Bible in, in college, undergrads, that he would give them hot chapters of the Bible. And I said, well, I have an idea of which ones I would put in there, but could you give me your list? And uh, so in a, about 10 minutes later, he sent me his list. And I, I don't even know the guy. I just have listened to him on podcasts and read lots of his books and stuff. And, and he was really gracious. And, and so uh, these are... <coughs> This is largely the list that he created, but each week as we go through the various passages, we want you to follow along. Uh, some weeks there's more reading than others, but if you follow along, then you should be able to catch the big picture of what Scripture is about. So next week you've got Genesis 2 through 11. This week you should have read Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4, and I hope you follow along with it. Now, I hope you brought your thinking caps today because you're going to have to do some thinking. In fact, what we're going to talk about today um, will be maybe fairly novel for some of you. Maybe you've not thought of it this way before. I think for many of you, it will challenge what you have been taught uh, about the book of Genesis or what you have assumed about the creation story throughout the years. And I don't want you to worry. We're not going to go outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. In fact, we're not even going to go outside the bounds of Wesleyan teaching. Okay, But there might be some stuff here that, uh, that is new to you or stuff that you haven't thought of before. And so I hope that you're going to think through it with me because uh, it might just be a way that you've not thought about Genesis before. <coughs> But while I know that for some it will be a real challenge, I also know that for others it will actually be a pleasant surprise or maybe a relief. Because there, I know that there are many of you who have lived with this difficult tension between what you've been taught about the Bible and particularly what you've been taught about creation and what you've been taught about science in school. And this is a real tension for, for many people, both believers and unbelievers. For many unbelievers, it's a real hurdle for them. For many believers, it tests their faith. In fact, the New Testament scholar that I emailed to get this, uh, the hot chapters of the Bible from is named Scott McKnight. And in one of his, one of his uh, lectures, he mentioned that in his years as 
a professor teaching undergrad introduction to the Bible. Um, And so these were, in a Christian college, these were a lot of kids who grew up in evangelical or sometimes fundamentalist churches. This was the greatest challenge to their faith. He saw more students have a crisis of faith over this issue than any other issue that he saw because they would attend churches where you had a pastor who would basically pit the Bible and science against each other and would would sort of demean scientists and their work and and make you skeptical of them and, uh, and then ask you to believe by faith what is written in Genesis despite what science has said. And this, like I said, left a lot of college students with a crisis of faith. And it's either believe what the Bible says by faith and reject some pretty compelling scientific evidence out of hand, or believe scientific evidence and reject the faith. And he said many of them chose the latter. Well, in recent years, the creation story has been the tipping point that oftentimes determines whether someone will continue on in the faith or not. But I think this is unfortunate because what I found as I've read and I've studied the passage and I've read scholars who know is I don't think you have to choose between the Bible and science. Science and scientists are not against the Bible. Now, you will find scientists that are against the Bible and think it's a silly fable and things like that, but I don't think largely it's because of science. Mostly it's because of a, of a pre-commitment to a materialistic worldview that can be sort of summarized in the popular statement made by Carl Sagan years ago where he said, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. You see, you have to understand that's not a scientific statement. It's actually a faith commitment. But see, here's why you don't have to choose. Because the Christian tradition has long taught that God has authored two books. The first one, of course, is Scripture, what we call the Bible. And the other is what we call the book of nature. Okay, and we interpret and apply the truths of the Bible by doing good exegesis and hermeneutics, all of the techniques of translation and, and the various tools that we use to get to understand it. And we interpret the natural world through science. Both of them are authored by God, and so both of them will be true, and they should not contradict one another. See, the Bible is our ultimate authority, but you have to understand that we can also learn to understand the Bible better by looking at science. And we said last week that we believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God, but you also have to understand that our interpretation is not inerrant. And so we have to be willing to continue to go back to the word and use the tools that we have to understand it to learn more and more about how we ought to look at, to get better and better interpretations of Scripture. And so we use other tools like linguistics and archaeology and geography and astronomy and horticulture to help us understand Scripture. And all of these things are, are pretty, uh, are pretty um, they're, they're uncontroversial. Okay? We use them all the time when we, when we try to understand Scripture. But the same is also true of things like geology and earth science, and genetics. But for some reason, we tend to be afraid of these last three. But all of these disciplines are things that can help us learn to understand Scripture better. And of course, the 
classical example of that is what happened with Galileo when he looked into a microscope and, and agreed with Copernicus when he said that the earth is not the center of the universe, but the earth revolves around the sun. And what happened was, was even though there were people both in the church and in the scientific community who rejected his views initially, eventually they came to understand that this is true. And so the, how we read certain passages of the Bible started to change. So for instance, when we looked at Genesis 8-2 that says, now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain stopped falling from the sky. This is in the flood account. We realize that actually when the Bible talks about the vault of the sky, it's actually not talking about like a piece of metal or material that's actually literally holding back the, the rains. There aren't actually floodgates in the sky, but he's writing figuratively. And so that's how we understand it. And it seems really elementary to us when we look at a passage like that. So science can help us understand and interpret what we're reading in Scripture, and I believe that is the case with the passage that, we're gonna, that we read today from Genesis chapter 1. And like I said, this is the one passage that makes more people believe that they have to choose between the Bible and science. But I think there are two important principles that, that I've come to believe that can help us to understand this better and sort of eliminate that need that we have to pit the Bible against science. And the first one is this, is that the Bible didn't intend to correct the science of the day. The Bible didn't intend to correct the science of the day. Now, last week we said that the Bible is not a science textbook. Okay, that was not its purpose. God revealed himself at a, per at a particular time in history to a particular group of people, and in order to communicate with them, he had to do so in a way that they understood. And so he used the language that they used, and he used the images, he used the understanding of the world that they would have understood to communicate the truth about God, humanity, and salvation. And I believe that when we spend so much of our time trying to prove the science of the Bible, we run the risk of missing what God actually intended to communicate to us through the creation story. Okay, so that's the first principle. The Bible didn't intend to correct the science of the day, but communicated through the science of the day and allowed us to get that later on down the road. Here's the second principle that can help us. How we read a passage depends on what kind of literature it is. Hey, now, we talked about last week that the Bible is all kinds of different literature, from poetry to prose to history to all of these various things, and we have to read each passage according to the literature, that, the type of literature that it is. Okay, so you might ask yourself, well, how does that make a difference? Well, the Old Testament professor, uh, Tremper Longman, uses this example, he, um, and he, he wrote this, I think he wrote this, but this uh, little description of what he calls the biography of David Marplethorpe. Okay, now listen to this carefully. I think we also have it on the screen. The clock on the mantelpiece said 10.30, but someone said the clock was wrong. As the dead woman lay on the bed in the front room, a no less silent figure glided rapidly from the house. The only sounds to be heard were the ticking of that clock and the loud wailing of an infant. Now, let's take that account and let's ask some questions about it, okay? This is the, remember, this is a biography that we're reading. And so then we have to ask the question, well, who are these figures in this scene and what's going on at the time? Well, if it's a personal biography, we might say the woman who is lying dead on the bed is a mother who just died in childbirth. 
And the figure that's slipping out at the time might be the midwife who ran to go get some help. And then there's a child wailing in the room. Okay? So if it's a biography, you read it a certain way. But let's say, for instance, instead of a biography, we're reading a murder mystery. How do you start to interpret the people in the story? The silent figure slipping out the door was the murderer who had just killed the woman who was lying on the bed. So what type of literature we believe it is determines how we read it and how we interpret the various pieces of it. And so the question we have to ask ourselves then is what kind of literature is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and really probably Genesis 1 through 11 because it's all fairly similar. Well, throughout history, there have been many different answers, but there have been a couple of, uh, I guess, polar opposite ways that people have answered this question in the past. One of them is to say that Genesis 1 is literal, factual history, okay? And so someone who would be in this camp would say that Adam and Eve are the actual first humans. They were created directly by God, by hand, on the sixth 24-hour day. Okay, many of them who believe this would also say that the earth is only 6,000 years old. Um, we would also say that the details that, that Anne read earlier through Genesis chapter 1 happened exactly the way they're written, literally, in the order that it describes. And, and usually, people who advocate for this view spend a great deal of time trying to show how the Genesis account lines up with the current science of the day. Uh, but... There are a few problems with this view of, of literal factual history. The first is, is that there are some contradictions with modern science that really can't be that, that really can't be um, can't can't be solved. For instance, in this view, like I said, the age of the Earth is almost six thousand is only about six thousand years. Okay, but modern science estimates that the Earth is anywhere from 3.6 to 4.6 billion years old, and the universe itself is somewhere around 13 or 14 billion years old. Okay, so in order to hold on to this view, you have to either ignore science um, or say that science is just wrong about the age of the Earth. Okay, so there's, and, and you know, you might say, well, I believe the Bible over science. Well, that's fine, but then you have to, you have to reckon with the, with the science of the day. Um, another problem is kind of a more internal problem that you see. For instance, that, that the Genesis account um, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 actually are two different accounts. And you can't really take both of them literally at the same time because they would contradict one another. So for instance, in Genesis 1, God made plants on the third day and made humans on the sixth day. But in Genesis 2, it says there were no plants on the earth when humanity was created. Okay? So you can't really take both of them literally because they don't line up. And there are a few other problems that you see there, issues like the fact that during this account, day and night are are, it says, you know, and there was morning and there was evening, the first day, second day, third day, but the sun wasn't created until the fourth day. And how do we determine days? Well, it's by the sun, right, and the moon and the, and the stars, okay? So it's hard to take that very literally. Um, it also raises the age-old question of if Adam and Eve were the actual first humans, um, where did their sons find wives? Okay, where did they come from? It seems like 
population exploded very quickly. And so it's hard to answer some of those questions if you take Genesis as actual literal fact. And so a lot of people say, well, I don't really, I I don't think we can reconcile those things with what we know about science. And so we're going to swing all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And we're going to say that Genesis seems to be an ancient myth, like all of the other ancient Near East myths, like the Enuma Elish, Atrahasis, the Baal myth, all of those. And this option is really attractive for many people because it solves a lot of the problems that the literal view has. The problem with this view, though, is that it seems like it doesn't line up very well with what we see in Genesis. Because if you compare the Genesis account to the other ancient origin stories, you find that they are very, very different. They're a completely different kind of literature. For instance, the ancient Near East myths always take place in this sort of timeless, primordial space beyond space and time. It happens all among the gods, and they have these fantastic and strange details. And so, for instance, uh, humans are always an accident, Humans are always just the result of something else, some kind of war or something that's happening within the God. Um, In fact, in one of the Babylonian stories, humans are made from a combination of the dust of the ground, the blood of the demon God combined with his spit. And it happened just accidentally. And, And so while even though we see some similarities in these stories, in these myths... Um, like human beings being made from dust, which isn't, you know, a real stretch, I guess. The Genesis story is actually anchored in space and time. That's why it says each day that there was morning and there was evening the third day. Now, all the pagan myths are basically the same, and, and it's no secret how much different the biblical account is from all of the other ancient Near East myths. In fact, most of the ancient Near East myths, you could almost, you could almost just plug in different details, and it's almost the same story. But the biblical account is completely unique in ancient literature among them. It seems to be a different kind of thing. My old seminary professor, John Oswalt, defines myth this way. He says, myth speculates on the nature of reality, and then, he uses, and then it uses space and time to justify this view. In other words, what it does is it says, here's what we think the world is like, then I'm going to tell a story to explain it. Okay? And so whatever you call the biblical account, it's not myth because the biblical account does just the opposite thing. It uses historical events to teach us about the nature of reality. And so then if it's not necessarily literal factual history, and if it's not myth, then what is the biblical account? What kind of literature is it? Well, I would agree with the view that Genesis 1 is what we call theological history. Theological history. Um, And this was the view of of my professor, John Oswalt, and and a number of others um, today. In other words, what that means is that it's apparent that Genesis 1 intends to describe actual events that happened in time and space, actual people, places, real time. But it also seems apparent that it doesn't describe them in scientific detail the way we understand science. It also seems apparent that it doesn't describe them in historic detail the way we understand history. But God, through the writer of Genesis and within the language and the thought of the day, communicated his purposes with the world to humanity. Now, I wish I had more time to go into detail on this, 
Um, if you have questions about it, I would love to talk with you more about it. You can shoot me an email or give me a call and we can go and grab coffee. But I'd love to talk with you more about this. But, but really the point that we want to make here is, is what Genesis teaches us about ourselves and about God and about the world. And so what I want to do is I want to talk through some of the things that, that, that it teaches. Um, and, and I think this is critical for us because there's no way to overestimate the foundational, uh, how foundational this story is to our faith. Okay? If we can't get this stuff straight here, then the rest of the story is not going to make sense. Okay? Um, a lot of times people think that the most important thing, the most critical, most critical part of the Bible are the laws, okay? and that'll teach us how to live. But actually, we can learn how to live even through stories, through origin, uh, origin stories just like this. And I think that's the purpose of the creation account. So we're going to talk about seven foundational truths uh, that we learn from the creation account. And because we have seven of them and we have a limited amount of time, I can't go into a ton of detail on them, uh, but these are foundational pieces, so it's important that we, that we go through them, important that we understand them, okay? So here's the first one. God created everything and loves his creation. Now you say, well, this is not very controversial, but actually, for some people, it is controversial. Just the idea that God created everything says a lot about the universe. And, and so Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And again, as I mentioned before, this is very different than the ancient origin myths that were around in the world. In fact, we can't really call the other myths creation stories because the gods don't really create things. The material world usually comes into existence through some kind of a divine accident. And as a result, there is no intent and there's no purpose to the world and there's no purpose for humanity. But what we can do is, is we can compare that then to an atheistic worldview today, and we can ask, well, how is it different than a pagan view? Well, atheistic worldview doesn't believe that it all happened with the gods, but you can say that the universe was kind of an accident, um, that there is no purpose. Now, some people might dispute this, but I don't see how you can, how you can have any kind of objective purpose um, if there's no purpose giver. Um, chaos reigns. Uh, but not only does the Bible reject the pagan view, but it also rejects the atheistic view because Genesis describes creation, describes the material world as an act of a loving creator. And over and over throughout Genesis chapter 1, God creates something and he takes a step back and he looks at it and it says, and God saw that it was good and there was morning and there was evening the next day. It wasn't chaos and the material world wasn't evil, naturally, but it's actually good. Now, this also contradicts a teaching that has crept up within the church from the beginning of time called Gnosticism as well. Gnosticism was, a, uh, was kind of an offshoot of Greek thought that basically said that the spiritual world is good and the material world is bad. And that's why many Christians throughout history have, have considered extreme asceticism where they deny their bodies and starve themselves and, and deny food and sex or anything else to enjoy because they believed that any kind of a accommodation to the body did not make you holy. When you focus more on the spiritual world, you became more holy because they rejected the evil of the flesh. But the Genesis story actually runs counter to this by teaching us that God's creation is good and God cares about it. 
says that your body is not naturally evil and that even pleasure is good as long as it stays within its bounds. Now, I think most people, at least in the Western world today, who believe in God, take for granted the idea that God is love. But again, this is not a a universal belief. In fact, most people who hold that view, I think, don't realize that this view is unique to the Bible. For instance, Eastern religions today don't believe really in a personal God, so an impersonal God or a force can't really love people. And, and other religions, like pagan religions, certainly don't view God this way. The, God is, the gods were chaotic and self-interested. They didn't love humanity. The best you could say about the gods was that they tolerated humans, found them useful, but mostly we were just an annoying accident that they just felt they had to live with. But the Bible tells us that the world is filled with purpose. It's filled with purpose. In fact, when you look at, at verses 3 through 25... What you'll find is, is that it doesn't, in, on each of those days, describe creating things out of thin air. Okay, so here's what I mean. Notice in verse 1, it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, this is what we call creation ex nihilo, okay, which means creation out of nothing. God took nothing and made something out of it, uh, created the material world. Then we get to verse 2, and it says, Now the earth was, what? Formless and empty. Okay? So essentially what we see here is, is that God uh, brings matter into existence, but just because matter is in existence doesn't mean that it necessarily has purpose and order. And so the process in, in verses 3 through 25 is God bringing order out of the chaos of matter. And it's not making a scientific claim about what was created first and what was created next. It's saying that God brought order to the universe and injected it with purpose. That the universe is the act of a designer with a plan, not a purposeless accident. God is creator, and he loves his creation. Second, it tells us that God is outside of creation, but also near to his creation. God is outside of, but also near to his creation. Okay, this is what we call transcendence and imminence. And this is one of the other ways that Genesis is different than the pagan religions. Um, These religions, and actually some religions today, actually teach that God is nature. And and so pagan religions had the sun god and the moon god, and had God, God was in trees and animals and that. And that's why they always made idols. And, And the idols always looked like things like cows and birds and goats and things like that. But the Bible teaches that God is transcendent. In other words, he's outside of his creation. That God is not in the form of an animal or not in the form of a tree or the sun or the moon. God is outside the material world. And that's why God is so against us using idols when we worship. Even if we're we're thinking of the Christian God while we're worshiping this idol. Okay, To worship idols is to buy into this pagan concept that God can be contained within creation. But God is outside of creation and above creation. He is the the king of creation. Now, there are also some people who believe, uh, some who would, I guess, consider themselves Christians, who believe that God is transcendent, but he's so transcendent that he has nothing to do with his creation. This is what we call deism. In fact, some of our founding fathers are what you would call deists. They believe that God made the world and wound it up like a watch, and now he just sits down, sits back, and watches everything play out without, without intervening at all, that, that he's left creation alone. But you have to understand that that is also not the God of the Bible. 
Because Genesis 1 shows us a God in intimate relationship with his creation, especially with humanity, a God who is not far away, but he gives humanity dignity and authority over creation, and he walks with us, and he talks with us along the way. Even though God is outside of creation, he has not left creation alone. Third, Genesis tells us that humans are creatures, but we're made in the image of God. The biblical story always keeps a clear distinction between creator, creation, and creature. Notice they all have the same root, and so they're all related to each other in some way, but it always keeps them separated from each other, that God is above all. But one of the things that we see in Genesis is that humanity is unique in that we seem to be some sort of a bridge between creation and creator. And this is what we call the image of God. And we see this in Genesis 1, 26, where it says, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So the question is, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, the Bible doesn't actually spell it out itself, but Christian tradition has had a number of different answers to this. But two of the really common ones, um, the first one is this. It means that human life has insurpassable worth. Human life is worth more than anything else. We are creatures, but we are not just creatures. It means that human life is more valuable than the life of a cat or a cow or a tree. Human life has intrinsic value because even in the saddest shape, even when people are uh, deformed, in a coma, disabled, unborn, we reflect the likeness of God. And we do that because we are made in the image of God. Even your enemies are creatures who are made in the image of God. As C.S. Lewis wrote, he says, there are no mere mortals. The second implication of uh, the image of God or what it means to be made in the image of God actually uh, brings us to our, our next point, and it's this, is that part of being made in the image of God is that we have responsibility to order the world toward flourishing. We have responsibility to order the world toward flourishing. Back to verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then he says, why? Okay, what is the purpose for making him in his likeness? So that he may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Then we skip down a few verses to verse 28, um, and it says this, that God blessed them, talking about the man and the woman, uh, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So we reflect the image of God. We are doing our part as the image of God when we work for the flourishing of the world. Now, the question is, is what does that mean? What does it mean to bring flourishing to the world? Well, it means, first of all, that your purpose in being here is not just your happiness. We say that all the time, but that's not something that we learn from psychology. It's actually something that we learn in these foundational truths in Scripture. It also means that we should treat all humans with dignity as creatures made in the image of God. It also means that we have responsibility to care for the earth. So Christians who don't care about the environment are acting contrary to the purpose for which we were created. Now, of course, we're to care for human beings first, but we're not called to exploit the earth just so we can be more comfortable. I think Christians should be the best environmentalists, not because we worship nature, but because God created it and has put us in charge of it. 
And the last three points, I think, will expand a little bit more on how we are to create flourishing. Uh, <coughs> principle number five. Genesis teaches us that marriage, marriage is critical for human flourishing. This is why Christians make a big deal out of marriage. It's not because we saw a law in Leviticus. It's not because we are just difficult to get along with and all of that, although we can be that sometimes. But it's because it's right here in our foundation story. Now remember, creation is the description of God ordering the world toward flourishing, bringing order out of chaos so that the world will flourish. And so it's not unintentional that God says, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then look at what it says down in chapter 2 says, and this is a description of marriage, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Male and female is not incidental to marriage. It's by design. And it's intended to order the flourishing uh, of the world. Now, despite what some people say, marriage was not invented by humans to subjugate women, although at times I think it has been used that way. Okay, but ultimately, marriage is a foundational piece of society because it creates uh, the optimal environment to bring children into the world and to raise them up in healthy ways. Okay, see, there's something about man and woman, a husband and wife, a mom and dad, who together take their God-given responsibility seriously that creates the best environment for a child. So children do the best when they're in their family with their mom and dad. Society does the best when it promotes and encourages healthy marriages. Sixth, Genesis gives us the principle of Sabbath. Sabbath is also ordered toward flourishing. This is what we read in in, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Okay? Now, I know that there are some people, some Christians, who would say, oh, the, the Sabbath is really no big deal because it's based on an Old Testament law that was written to the people of Israel, so it really doesn't apply to Christians. I don't know why we make such a big deal out of it. Okay? But if you look at the actual law, and it's found in the, it's one of the Ten Commandments, so this is one of the ten important ones, right? And, uh, and what you find is, is that the Ten Commandments, the, the law in the Ten Commandments is actually based on the creation story. Okay, this is what it says, Exodus chapter 20. Um, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you do not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. See, so it's based not just on an arbitrary law, but it's based on human flourishing. It finds its foundation in the creation story. And, and what we see here is a countercultural wisdom of God. It's not just an arbitrary rule, but it's there for our good. Okay? First of all, it's, it's a holiday of sorts. And who doesn't like holidays, right? Okay? It's a holiday where we stop to remember and we give thanks and we worship God. Okay? That's, what, that's what we do here, right? Right? Um, But it's also 
um, to practice trust in God. Okay, and here's what I mean. Is that for many people in our world today, and I think it's been true for a lot of history, there's a real temptation to work seven days a week. And the reason people want to work seven days a week is because we love to produce or we're worried about being able to make enough to survive or in our world to be able to make enough to accumulate the things that we want to accumulate. But one of the purposes of the Sabbath law was to say, you know what, I'm just going to step back and say, I don't have to be producing all the time. I don't have to be accumulating things, that I can sit back and I can take this time to rest, to show and to learn, to trust that God will provide for me. And that was the purpose of the Sabbath, to say, I don't have to be busy. I don't have to do all of this stuff all the time. But just like God took the time to rest on the seventh day, then we are to take the time to rest as well. And that brings us to our final takeaway from the creation story. And it's this, is that God asks us to trust Him by doing things according to His wisdom and not ours. God asks us to trust Him by doing things according to His wisdom, not ours. Now, we'll dive deeper into this last one uh, next week as we talk more about Adam and Eve and we talk about the fall, talk about what went wrong with the world. Uh, But over the course of this series, we're going to see that trust is the key issue throughout the Bible. Over and over and over at every turn, the Bible challenges us with the decision of who is going to be on the throne. Who gets to determine what is right and wrong? Who is the one who has the right to to rule our lives? The story of the Bible tells us that we've been given the responsibility to care for God's order, uh, for God's creation, and to order our lives according to His wisdom But he's also given us the freedom to do what's right in our own eyes. Now, whether whether or not you believe the Bible, I guess that's up to you. But if you don't, the question is, is what story anchors you? What story infuses your life with meaning? What story gives you a reason to get up in the morning and gives your life purpose? What story keeps you walking the straight path rather than being blown back and forth by the current winds of culture. See, when you submit yourself to God through the story of the Bible, I believe that all of those things will start to fall into place. But I also want this series to be a challenge to those of you who consider yourself to be believers, who would say, yeah, I I believe in the Bible. To take an honest look at it and to take an honest look at yourself and say, who really is king? Who really is the one who has the authority to command my life? Do I operate according to my own wisdom? Or do I operate according to God's? And that's really the question that's asked all throughout the Bible. Let's pray. God, thanks for this passage. We thank you for your word. We thank you for ancient wisdom. That, that gives us purpose and direction, that, that shows us where we ought to go. And during this time, I, <coughs> I also want to thank you for science that helps us to understand your word. And Lord, I, I pray that we would be wise in how we see the interplay between those two things, that we would hold your word up as our authority 
and use all of the other disciplines that we have and all of the other knowledge that we learn through the book of nature and through all of the different techniques and, and ways that we've learned to understand things. I pray that that would help us to grow in a deeper understanding of your word. But more than any of it, God, I pray that we would be willing to also conform ourselves to what you say, who, who you say you are, what the world is, who we are. And Lord, as we do that, Lord, may we see the fruit of the blessing that you have promised to us when we trust you. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through the reading that we do this week, that we would learn, that we would understand, um, and that more and more we would get to know you through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.